Hello, I'm Shane Phillips with the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and this is the Housing Voice podcast. The goal of this show is to bring depth and clarity to housing research and hopefully make it easier to make your neighborhood a more affordable and equitable place to live. Once again, we have a special guest co-host for this episode, and once again, it is someone you may recognize. You'll hear from them in just a moment, so let's get to the interview. Okay, joining us today is Dr. Minji Kim, Assistant Professor in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at Florida State University. Dr. Kim earned her bachelor's from Yonsei University in Seoul, South Korea, and both her master's degree and PhD in urban planning from MIT. Reading your bio on the Florida State website, you say how you worked as a practicing planner while in Massachusetts and found that planners didn't really have the skills or knowledge, at least in many cases, to steward development projects in ways that supported their planning goals And that in academia, real estate development is often viewed in opposition to progressive planning goals and learning how it works isn't really emphasized. So despite how central it is to the way most of our cities are shaped um, and evolve, it's just kind of overlooked in many cases. So we have this disconnect that you're trying to bridge with your work which really resonated with uh, a lot of the work that we're doing here and how I see my work. This very long introduction is all just to say we are very excited to have you on the Housing Voice podcast today, and, and thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Shane, for, for your um, wonderful introduction and also um, for having me here. I really uh, want to start out by saying how excited and honored and nervous I am to be on this podcast. <laughs> this is my first podcast recording, and also the, you know, just being here, you know, the past guest lineup has been amazing. And I mean, you know, who hasn't read the work of, you know, Mike and the UCLA trio. So I'm, I'm really, you know, honored to be here. Um, and so thank you, Shane, for um, unearthing my work from the, <laughs> the, the world of, you know, arcane academic journals. And um, you really seem to be doing an excellent job with the, the podcast, really, you know, drilling into the details of academic research, but also making it approachable to the general public. So I really enjoyed um, listening to the previous episodes and we hope that I can you know, contribute to the conversation. And we have a special co-host again here today, another familiar face from the Lewis Center um, and our podcast, Dr. Michael Manville, Associate Professor of Urban Planning here at UCLA and our guest for episode three, where we discussed bundled and unbundled parking. Mike Lenz is on vacation, and so we figured who better to replace him than another Mike. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, my first name comes in handy sometimes. So, uh, but it is, um, it's good timing because I really enjoyed reading Professor Kim's papers, both because I have an interest in value capture and because uh, I am from the Boston area originally. And so I always like reading about Boston. Yeah, and it, and it will become clear why that is important. Uh, so Dr. Kim is here to discuss her 2020 article published in the Journal of the American Planning Association titled, Negotiation or Schedule-Based, Examining the Strengths and Weaknesses of the Public Benefit Exaction Strategies of Boston and Seattle. And I, this is not a knock on you, Dr. Kim. I'm just, there's no way to read these titles in an interesting way. I'm going to have to like do some post-processing here and maybe some sound (laughs) effects or something like that. Uh, But um, 
This paper is about different strategies local governments use to try to draw out public benefits from new development, uh, especially things like low-income units and open space that's publicly accessible. And these benefit requirements are often um, referred to as value capture, where the government grants a developer the right to build more of whatever they're interested in building, building taller, more dense, things like that. And because those additional development rights have value to the developer, something is asked of them in return. And so I've, I've glossed over a lot of nuance in that summary, and we'll get a lot further into the details momentarily. But first, can you just give us an overview of the two public benefit exaction strategies that you evaluated, which are negotiations and schedule-based exactions? And feel free to correct if I was misleading in anything up to this point. Absolutely. Well, I think um, I do want to start out by somewhat distinguishing the um, original idea behind exactions versus the more sort of um, recent framework. So the original idea behind exaction is to mitigate the negative impacts of you know new developments, mostly mm-hmm. being transportational, um, environmental, and you know strength strain on existing city services, right? So so that's the the idea that you know governments should be asking for something um, for mitigation measures to mitigate the negative impacts. However, the the idea of um, public benefit exaction, you know, in present days have evolved to become more of this um, bargaining framework that you just described. So we'll definitely be coming back to this this distinction. And it it is not, you know, by all means, easy to distinguish the two different types in any way. But I think it is an important fact to point out um, to begin with. And then um, to jump into the overview of the the benefit exaction strategies in Boston and Seattle, um, as I describe in the paper, uh, Boston's um, exaction regime is one that can be characterized as almost exclusively and or if not heavily um, negotiation based. So almost all large scale developments have to go through the Boston's um, Article 80 process, which um, the name comes from its zoning code, Article 80 of the zoning code that governs the the review framework process. Mm -hmm. And uh, within this Article 80 process, there's this there's this built in negotiation, you know, opportunity. So uh, for any large scale project coming into the, the city to um, you know secure approval the the developers essentially have to submit a um, letter of intent and then a citizens advisory committee like entity um, gets <laughs> gets organized in Boston and then um, the, the developers have to you know present the work with the to the the citizens advisory committee and then sort of um, hash out the details um, before it gets presented to the approval body um, and also the most important Important aspect of Boston's negotiation basic um, regime is that Boston historically, ever since the 1980s, has kept buy right density really low. So for developers to build at any profitable um, sort of scale, they have to come to the city to go through this, you know, Article 80 process. Mm-hmm. And not all projects are mandated but to go through the Article 80 process. But if there's any form of zoning relief or change or amendment that that needs to be made for, and in reality, almost all projects are, are like that. They have to go through this Article 80 process with the, nego- the built-in negotiation framework. And Mike, I, I believe you have a phrase for that. Uh, I, yes, I, <laughs> I tend to call this pretextual zoning, right? Which is the, um, the idea, as, as Minji has, has really 
succinctly put it, you know, it's, uh, you have a law that's its real purpose is to make the developer come to you sort of uh, and, and offer something because nobody, whatever the height limit is now, whether it's 40 feet then or 50 feet before, but the, the main point is that nobody in Boston's planning office really thinks a development is going to be carried out at some excessively low density or someone's going to propose a 20-foot a tall building, you know, in Copley Square. The law is there because there's an understanding that the developers will do something to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a pretext. Yeah. How about Seattle? How does that, how does their planning regime compare? Right, right. So Seattle came really as a surprise when, um, as I started looking into and get got to know more of Boston's regime, right? So Seattle, um, I was trying to see what, you know, other cities were doing in terms of their entitlement review process, and then was looking at different major cities, basically, Seattle, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, were some of the major ones that I did look at. Mm-hmm. And Seattle really stood out as an outlier in terms of how formulaic it was in its public benefit exaction. So So um, I think the basic idea is perhaps the same, that you get additional density if you provide public benefit. But in Seattle, that um, ratio of a benefit versus additional density is always clearly laid out in the zoning code. So, mm-hmm. for example, in downtown Seattle, if you for every you know square feet of open space that you provide, you get five additional square feet for your you know downtown office space. So so that really characterized um, Seattle's approach that it is based on formula and that it really is all about certainty and clarity in the in the process. So basically what you, you should give to to get what you want. Yeah. And Mike mentioned he's from Boston or the Boston area. I'm actually from Seattle or the Seattle area. And I lived in Seattle proper for a while before coming to Los Angeles. So we're both familiar with these case study cities. And beyond, I think, the the fact that their approval processes are so different from one another, the cities in many other respects are very similar in terms of population size, the vacancy rates, the trajectory that their rents had been on even demographically to some extent. So there's a lot of similarities there as well. So we have these two cities that are very similar in many respects, um, one of which is very discretionary in its approval process, negotiation-based, the other of which is more formulaic, as you said, where if you meet the requirements on paper, then you're pretty much good to go with your project. One thing that we would predict from that is that the less discretionary approval process like the one in Seattle would produce more housing. And that is what you find. Seattle approved, I think it was around 20 to 30% more units than Boston from 2009 to 2018. And a much larger share of those projects were under 100,000 square feet and valued under $50 million. So in other words, approval processes that are more ministerial or by right or formulaic, and I'm using those all synonymously, those processes seem maybe friendlier to smaller scale developers whereas the more discretionary or negotiation-based approvals are probably a little more favorable to larger developers who know how to manage and maybe have the resources to manage a more uncertain process. Um, They might have more established relationships with elected officials, public staff, their lenders, and so forth. Is that a reasonable characterization of of what you found? Mm Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think um, yes, to an extent, for sure. So I think the the key really here is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. 
So uncertainty of the approvals process is much higher in Boston, as we'll probably yeah. get into the details um, later in this podcast. But the fact that developers have little control over how long it will take to secure approval, you know, that in and of itself, and whether or not, or not they will secure approval, right? Um, that in and of itself renders the, the projects riskier, mm-hmm. right? And so accordingly, the investors, the lenders that, you know, see these um, investment opportunities will seek higher higher returns in in return for for their investment because it's riskier. Also, investors and lenders might want to work with only with developers with this, you know, established track record of getting the projects through, right? And 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 so I think the one of the outcome of that process, uncertain process is that developers who are, you know, as you've described, um, less politically connected and experienced and have, have little, you know, access to capital might be at a disadvantage and likely are at a disadvantage in a negotiation heavy regime like Boston. On the other hand, though, I do want to emphasize that I don't want to really diminish the history of uh, Boston's development regime. The restrictive, tightly controlled regime existed since the 1980s, as we've discussed earlier. And ever since then, Boston's developers have come to learn, right, that they they have to be in good terms mm-hmm. with the city to get the projects to get go through, right? And and they have to, uh, you know, be in, on good terms with the mayor, especially because it's so uh, mayor centric. And so, um, so with that, you know, decades long history, 50 years of history of being in that, such an uncertain and negotiation based regime, I think it's contributing to the, the fact that it it's become, you know, less friendly to to smaller scale developers. But what the part of the goal of the paper is also to sort of add nuance to the to this, you know, perception that negotiation based regime does not always have to be mm-hmm. like that. And and which is what Boston is, in fact, doing to improve their their negotiation based regime. And, and also, you know, in Boston, yes, in Boston, you see less diversity in terms of architects, consultants and developers who are in the in the business of building. So I think it's it's a factor of, you know, multiple forces that are that are at mm-hmm. play. I think, you know, I just want to highlight what you just said because I think it's a really important point that sometimes gets overlooked when we talk about development, which is that once you have a a system like uh, like Boston's which does involve a lot of back and forth and uncertainty and in, and in many respects where we are in Los Angeles parts of it look like that here too. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the results you get is, as you put it, that a developer has to be more than someone who can deliver a physical structure, and they have to be someone who can who can deliver a, a permission through the system. And that really does select for a, a very different kind of person. Like you can't you can't just have someone or an institution that was good at building housing anymore. You have to have someone who knows how, as you put it, to stay on good terms with the mayor. And I think you know. What's happened as a result of that is that in this effort to get, you know, some some concessions from developers, whether they're exactions or value capture uh, in exchange for housing, we've also created uh, an impression that a lot of people uh, find distasteful, which is that the developers are just very closely tied in with the government. And it has this whiff of cronyism. And sometimes, of course, it really turns into corruption. That, that happened mm-hmm. out here in L.A. this past year. And so I think they are, and I would be interested in your your thoughts on this, because when you said it, it sort of triggered this this thought process in my mind. I mean, they really are sort of really tied up in each other. If we if we have a system where we want the developers to really be on good terms with the powerful people, we're also courting 
a suspicion among the average person that like, oh, these guys are just cronies and they're, they're kind of tied up with each other. Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, there's um, absolutely no, you know, denying the fact that negotiation-based discretionary regime leaves room for potential misuse and, you know, at worst case scenario, abuse of that discretionary power, right? And I mean, I suppose that that's true with any discretionary power that's given to, mm-hmm. to a decision-making body. I agree. And Right. And and so the public trust in the planning process and the development control clearly takes a hit because of that, um, the perception, whether or not the, the corruption is real or perceived. Right. And and as you, you know, seem to hint at it in both um, you and Shane, there's there's a lot less actual corruption that goes on behind the doors than what right. it is, um, especially in, in my opinion, in today's world where everything from personal emails to social media accounts are all under public scrutiny. It's, um, you know, a lot more difficult for for that type of corruption, the one that we're thinking to happen. But in terms of the the you know public trust and the perception, you know, there's there's no way of um, denying that. And the um, the yearning for you know certainty, uniformity. I mean, that's what gave rise to to the zoning in its first place. So that that will not go away, especially given the best vested interest of of the property owners. People want to see you know what's what my neighborhood's going to look like in the future, right? So so I think that's um, you know. The negotiation-based regime clearly, you know, starts off, starts off at a disadvantaged point when it comes to public trust in the planning and development process. I do think that the more you bring the negotiation part to the public and to use that process as a forum for hashing out the details of the negotiation, I'm thinking more along the lines of community benefit negotiations mm-hmm. um, that can happen in a in a way that um, that is not seen as you know backroom wheeling and dealing right I think the more light the negotiation process gets the the less actual and perceived corruption issue that you'll have and which is which is what in my view uh, Boston is really trying to do is to put that negotiation to the forefront of the, you know, of the public review, um, you know, arena. Yeah, here, here in Los Angeles, and I think this is true of many places, it's essentially up to the council member to negotiate these things. And, and usually the other council members who represent different districts where the development is not occurring, they just kind of go along with whatever the one who actually represents that area agrees to. And as you say, that's, you know, mm-hmm. we've had two FBI investigated ones already been sent to prison or jail or whatever um, in the last year, mm-hmm. and another is probably headed there soon out of 15 council members. So these things can get to that level um, and and having it so controlled within, especially just a single office where it's really just a single elected official can result mm-hmm. in that. And so I want to move on to what we talked about so far, the total production of buildings and the kind of skew toward larger buildings in the more discretionary process. That's sort of what we would expect based on, you know, most most theories about how this stuff works. The other prediction um, would be that negotiations would yield more public benefits, but probably slower approvals, whereas the schedule-based exactions would produce fewer benefits, but faster approvals. And that's not actually exactly what you found. And so can you just tell us what the results were in terms of public benefits like affordable units and open space for Boston and Seattle and how long it took to receive the approvals in each case? 
Right. To state it in one sentence, right? In the interest <laughs> of time, Boston did extract much greater extent and magnitude and types breadth of public mm -hmm. benefits than Seattle. Um, just illustratively, you know, in Boston, um, 431 affordable units and $15 million were extracted just in 2016's large scale projects. Seattle, on the other hand, 32 affordable units and then 35.4 million. I've converted the, the um, dollar figure into units and it comes down to Boston extracting 15% of the total market units as affordable versus Seattle being, you know, 2.2%. So that's, that's a huge difference. And yeah. then in, also in Boston, um, more than one third of the projects um, have pledged to provide substantial open space for, for the, the surrounding community for the city. In Seattle, about one fifth of the project did so. But in term, when you look at the details of what these open spaces will look like, it's, it's clear that Boston's um, open spaces are going to be much more significant, you know, actual park spaces, playground, dog park versus Seattle's would be more through block, you know, connections and, you know, publicly accessible courtyards and et cetera. And then uh, Boston also extracted additional miscellaneous um, public amenities, uh, which sometimes are direct monetary contributions to um, community organizations and mm -hmm. nonprofits, but also um, at other times, you know, contribution to existing open spaces, contribution to, you know, transportation improvements versus Seattle that, you know, additional benefit was also really um, mm -hmm. you know, small. So I think overall, it is fair to characterize that Boston extracted much greater, you know, magnitude and breadth of benefits uh, than Seattle uh, based on the 2016 data. In terms of the review time, um, as you suggested, it was it was surprising that the median time for Boston was much shorter than yeah. Seattle. In Boston, it was seven months uh, with the, the median review time. In Seattle, it was one year and three months. And we'll get into you know why this is the case in Seattle. But what's important to point out is that in Boston, the variation is pretty huge, right? If a project sails through the, the review process, one project in 2016 was approved under 60 days versus another project under that, that was also approved in 2016 took 5.5 years to get through the, the line. Which goes to your point about uncertainty. Yeah. Uncertainty. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then in Seattle, the projects on average, you know, took um, the, the longest it took was three years and four months, still really long, but, you know, um, it's less than Boston. And then the shortest was um, still more mm -hmm. than eight months. So that variation is, is there, there's a huge difference. Yeah. Let's dig into both aspects of that, the public benefits and approval speed just a little further. In the paper, you mentioned something called the average cost problem, which was something I'm not sure I'd heard the actual phrase before because I am not well read, but I was familiar with the concept generally uh, and how this average cost problem is perceived as a shortcoming, is a shortcoming to schedule-based exactions compared to negotiated exactions. Can you just explain that term and give us a little background on why negotiations are expected to yield more public benefits for a given project? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I do not blame you for not knowing the term because this was the first <laughs> time that I've come across, you know, come across someone actually coining that concept mm -hmm. too, um, as I was writing the paper. So the the idea of um, average cost problem is that uh, it's simply that it's difficult to, you know, 
arrive at a perfect average cost when the circumstances are so uncertain. So let me just explain that through example. So real estate development ventures are, you know, by nature inherently um, highly sensitive to market conditions, as Mm -hmm. we all know. And the market conditions are highly volatile, right? So you can have a strong market today and then there's a great recession. So then it tanks. So so because of that, you know, highly volatile market conditions, when rules are set up up front, cities cannot confidently predict what tomorrow's going right. to look like. And then set up a standard that is, you know, commensurate to the market conditions of the future. So because of that future uncertainty, cities are essentially forced to um, put in a place to basically uh, arrive at an exaction standard that is, you know, much lower than what it can be under, you know, the optimal Mm -hmm. conditions, let's say that we're, which is more and more sort of conforming to the negotiation based regime that you're negotiating the project's economics, you know, real time, almost real time, so that you have you can take into consideration strong market conditions and can ask for you know high greater extent of public benefit under that stronger market conditions and and so if if cities on the other hand are creating rules based on current strong market conditions they're all inevitably going to run into oppositions from the development industry from the landowners saying that oh you're looking uh, you know you're using the assumptions assumptions that are too rosy because you know Today, it might mm-hmm. look good, but tomorrow it might not. And so it's generally, you know, as a political backdrop, I think it's generally really hard to establish schedules that are highly demanding and which kind of go, is, is, you know, a long-winded way of say, uh, explaining the average cost problem. And, and also, I think the other main piece is, is that cities are, and local governments um, is what I mean by um, cities, is that they are generally highly, highly risk averse in terms of lawsuits. Mm-hmm. So when planners and planning departments um, begins to engage in, you know, exaction schedules, they are essentially going to be told by, advised by the city's attorney's office to, you know, sort of downward project the the future conditions and thus the, you know, how much they can extract. Right. And even if they were to be too aggressive and that wasn't a concern or they had a good justification for, we're going to set these, um, you know, these exactions at a pretty high level, if they did so in a way where it made, you know, a lot of developments infeasible, it might, that might be the case the day it's passed, but five years from now, maybe the market changes, it actually gets more uh, favorable and, you know, you can get higher rents and these kinds of things. And so over time, mm-hmm. something that might've been too high or maybe even set just right, it might not be in the future where, you know, rather than exactly. asking too much, you might be asking too little as well. And so either way, it's very unlikely that you're going to be right in that sweet spot for, for very long at any given property. Exactly. And given that it's difficult to change the rules yeah, of the game, yeah. right? Right. And I, and I think there's there's an endogeneity in there, too, that's worth thinking about. I mean, just taking Shane's point a little bit further, which is that if you set things too high and deter some development, um, then in 10 years, all else equal, you have the right demand because your housing prices will have right, gotten high enough right. in part because of your rules um, mm-hmm. that they become feasible. And certainly, you know, Boston in the 1980s was just a very different housing market than than Boston today in the sense that uh, it was just starting to turn around from a, a period of terrible decline. I mean, if you look back at, at Boston in the 1980s and, and look at the rhetoric of Ray Flynn and some of his advisors about like, what are we gonna do about all this development? 
I mean, it's just, it's very funny to think about that today because it's like, what development? <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously there were some cranes there, but Boston had been emptying out. You know, people were talking about it was finished as a city. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, when I was growing up, like yeah, the, the area near Park Street was called the combat zone. Um, and now you can buy like a $10 coffee there. <laughs> and so it's, uh, uh, mm-hmm. but it just goes to your point about how hard it is to, to change a regime once it's there, but that, that the initial conditions are often very different from what we initially yeah. anticipated. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to build on this a little further. I guess the point I want to make is that maybe the average cost problem is not such a problem. So as an example, we have here in LA something called the affordable housing linkage fee, which is a fee we tack on to certain developments to help fund low-income housing projects or units But the fee has actually been set higher in wealthier parts of the city like West L.A. than in other parts of the city. And it's, you know, maybe not stated explicitly, but it's because of this average cost problem. There's this recognition that, you know, the market is stronger in West L.A. And we're probably asking too little if we ask the Mm -hmm. same in East or South L.A. as we do in West L.A. But as I said, I do think there's some benefit to this because if we have an equal linkage fee across the city that's going to tend to give projects in those wealthier areas a little bit of an advantage over developments in poorer areas in terms of feasibility. And, you know, I think Mike and I agree, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's kind of the, the common belief among professional planners and academics and so forth, that it's we actually want more housing to be built in higher income areas rather than lower income areas in places where there's more access to good jobs and schools and parks and other amenities and less risk of displacement of of more vulnerable households. So, you know, I feel like this comes down in part to whether you want to put more stock or prioritize maximizing these really explicit public benefits, or if you're more concerned with these kind of more intangible benefits of increasing access to higher opportunities and providing more more housing in those locations. What are your thoughts on that trade-off? So I think... um... I mean, what you're talking about essentially is boiling down to whether exactions, like what impact do exaction policies have on housing production and affordability, right? And and the locations of where the housing gets built, which I think is a really important question and, and a debate that's going on right now is not just how do we build as much housing as we can, but how do we make sure it's it's being built in the right places where it can provide the most benefits and do the least harm, you know, in terms of displacement and things like that. Right, right. Absolutely. And I do want to point out that, in my view, the dynamic will be different, um, is different. If we're talking about building, you know, duplexes or um, townhouses in a predominantly single family neighborhood versus, you know, if it's in a wealthy neighborhood, for example, versus developers of of multifamily commercial Mm -hmm. real estate projects. And I say so because project feasibility for multifamily commercial developers aren't probably impacted too much by the higher exaction standards. These developers will essentially say that as long as the rules are stated clearly upfront and they can expect how much they need to factor in in, in their you know, performa, this is okay because um, they're essentially going to pay less for developable sites. Right. So um, That's the residual land value. Exactly, exactly. Versus economics for small scale home and condo builders are completely or largely different. The cost of impact fees and linkages almost, um, you know, instantly gets passed on to the the final housing price, home values or prices. 
and and that's because these smaller scale builders and developers don't back out the purchase price price of land from how much money that can be made minus the, the construction cost, the residual land value idea. Um, they don't do that. Generally speaking, they instead determine how much to sell the house for, depending on the cost of the construction and the, the land value. So, um, so for these developers, if impact fees gets um, you know tacked on or linkage fees or whatever, um, the the final home values are going to increase. And um, versus I, that translation or transition is as as um, direct for commercial um, multifamily apartment builders. So I don't necessarily think that it's a one mm-hmm. well, you know, one-to-one trade-off when I'm thinking about exaction uh, policies versus housing production and that there's, you know, a lot more nuance that, that gets missing when we're talking about talking about how exaction policies and affordable housing policies, linkage fees impact the, the actual production piece of, of that. Yeah, I, I do want to hold on on Boston and Seattle for a little bit longer before we go too far into the more philosophical conversation, which I know I, I led us to, so I'm not faulting anyone else here. But we, we were talking about the timing and this kind of surprising result that the negotiated process in Boston is actually faster on average, or the median time is faster by, it's actually less than half the amount of time um, than the schedule-based process in Seattle. And it seems like Seattle's design review process is, is really the culprit here. Seattle has its own discretionary process. It's just not for the exactions. So can you give us a little bit of that background and right. just this, this interesting result that came about here? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Seattle has a highly discretionary design review process, as you alluded to, and that definitely has been the um, the bottleneck for for its entitlement process. Um, and and so city essentially has. Um, eight standing design review boards that are made up of volunteering citizens, mm-hmm. um, which uh, represent different, different professional backgrounds like architects, landscape architects, you know, builders, et cetera. And so um, each design review board has five members and these boards meet uh, twice a month, uh, which is quite taxing for a, a volunteering you know, group of citizens, yeah. right? But because they only meet uh, twice a month, that there's only so much that they can review per per month, and and um, the the entitlement process, the discretionary design review process, is a two step process. So there's this early design guidance meeting that reviews the overall massing and general sort of scope scale of the building and how the building's gonna you know the volume's gonna look like, and and this early design guide process alone could take multiple rounds. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, you know, meeting twice a month and then going through multiple rounds of design, early design guidance, and then another round of detailed design review that, you know, talks about materials, you know, front um, access and, you know, sidewalk sort of appearance. Um, And that could also take multiple rounds um, technically. So then if you add up that process, it's, it's a lot to, uh, to be adding to the, the entitlement timeline. And I, and I do want to add that the process is, it's changing the design potentially, but it's, mm-hmm. I guess there's a question of, is that the thing that people care most about? We're, we're spending all of this time on, you know, making these tweaks to the design. Maybe they're big, maybe they're small. Um, but as you say in your paper, the design review commissioners are not allowed to say, we think there should be more affordable units here. We think you should change the number of units, those kinds of things. 
I don't even know if they can really require more open space or that kind of stuff. So it's right. it's a lot of time spent on, I mean, it's not, I don't want to imply that the design doesn't matter, but I'm not sure it's what most people would consider like the, the highest priority. And for it to be this thing that is maybe adding six or 12 months to a project's timeline, right. um, it, it seems like a poor use of, of resources maybe. Right. I mean, I think that's a really valid critique. And you're right that the the content of the design review meetings are strictly design, mm -hmm. you know, focused, that you're not supposed to negotiate in any, any aspect, the overall density or the height or, you know, uh, public benefit, um, for that matter. It's it's about the design details and the, you know, the massing. And so, so you're, I think it's, your critique is really valid in the sense that we're spending, Seattle is spending, you know, a whole amount of time on on these design review. I do want to point out that um, the developers that I've spoken to in Seattle don't really have too much complaints mm -hmm. about the design review process because they know that although it's going to take long, that they know that it's not, you know, it's not a matter of, oh, will I get approval or not? It's just, right. will my building look like A or will my building mm -hmm. look like so I can add in that, you know, several extra months, as long as I can predict what the final outcome is going to look like. So I, although it's, you know, it's adding to the entitlement process, I don't think it's, um, you know, necessarily being viewed as, you know, detrimental to Seattle's um, entitlement process in general. It doesn't have that like project killer potential, at least. Right, right. Yeah. So you're essentially, you know, it, it, as we've discussed, um, negotiate or fine-tuning the design details, not the, not the, we're not debating the, the merit of the project itself. So, mm -hmm. and I do want to, you know, I do think that the, the buildings, the final outcomes do look really um, nice in this, in, in the design sense that they are very um, context sensitive and in terms of massing its detail. So I, I do think very highly of the process itself, but mm -hmm. um, it is true that it's a lot of time spent on design. Yeah. I will, I will give, Seattle credit, having been from there and going back occasionally, right. buildings tend to look a lot nicer than what we're building here in LA, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Or in Boston. I mean, although what's funny is that LA does in some neighborhoods have design review. Um, and, and so it is an interesting kind of efficiency question. I mean, I think in some places design review becomes a, unlike in Seattle, a backdoor way to try and take some mm -hmm. units off mm -hmm. or things like that. And it's good that Seattle doesn't do that. But it would be a, an interesting, almost purely academic question to try and determine if in these places it really does get you better design. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it seems like in right. Seattle it really works, but, you know, you could you could just imagine talking to people and saying, like, what if we designed a building by committee at the very end of a project <laughs> and, you, you know, see people sort of shudder a little bit, uh, especially for something that really is, you know, not just to Shane's point, maybe not the most important aspect of the building, but also, you know, truly in the mm -hmm. eye of the beholder. And architects have very strange ideas of like what makes a beautiful building. <laughs> I I I well, feel sure. like they if if architects universally love something, there's a very good chance that regular people are not gonna be big fans because <laughs> it's gonna be very high yeah. concept and uh that's we don't have to go too far down right. that road. I will say uh, a good uh paper I read a while back with a great title is called Design Review Reviewed. Mm. And it's oh. in that paper, this is from, I think, a few decades right. ago, but they did find that people who were surveyed about buildings that went through design review 
did not find them to be more attractive or pleasing or whatever. But I will say that the scope was pretty limited. These were more like single family homes and kind of relatively minor mm-hmm. revisions as opposed to, you know, the design of an entire seven story or 40 story building, which I think there probably is more of a role for some kind of, you know, I don't know how you do an objective design review. Well, you, you probably can't. And this is the last I'll say about it. Cause I know we want to move on, but it is a, uh... There is a role for something like it, I think, if only because as planning became more technocratic, one thing that did get lost, I think, was was an emphasis on how the city ultimately mm-hmm. looked. You know, that that when, when planning was purely, did you hit this numerical benchmark and that numerical benchmark, you know, oftentimes what got spit out was just almost everybody agreed it was unattractive. But unfortunately, I think a lot of the parameters that determine that aren't things that are subject to design review. I mean, I have my particular bugaboo, which is parking requirements, which I think, you know, dramatically changed the aesthetics of almost any project um, and and have made Los Angeles huge swaths of it very ugly. Um, But unfortunately, a design review committee can't say you don't have parking requirements. And so they, in in some respects, the people charged with design review are also working with such tight parameters that their real real ability sometimes to make a building better looking is is yeah. limited. Another thing that stood out to me in this paper is just how really unusually well run Boston's negotiated approval process seems to be compared to kind of my understanding of negotiated and discretionary processes generally. The city has in-house real estate experts, and they sometimes even bring in external consultants to work on the negotiations. And based on the approval timelines, it seems like they bring them in pretty early and don't really let that hold things up too much. And that strikes me as a pretty unusual practice. In most places, it just seems like the demands made are not really based on evidence. It's kind of just both parties, the city and the developer or the community and the developer, trying to get as much as they can, you know. And, and try to win the negotiation, basically. I think, you know, Mike and I are certainly advocates for buy-right approval processes generally, but your paper makes it clear that you can have that ethos of, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to make things very straightforward and buy-right, but the details really still matter as the discretionary review process shows. And it just takes one dysfunctional link in that chain and things kind of fall apart to some extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, I can't agree more with, you know, how you've characterized it, that the that details really matter in these processes. Um, and yes, absolutely. I, I agree with you that Boston by far has one of the most well-managed development review process that is negotiation based. And, but this, this has to be understood in context that um, I really didn't have enough space to dis- discuss the historical and political background of how Boston came to have such a, you know, a well sort of functioning system. But, mm-hmm. and most people in Boston, in fact, um, and Mike, you might agree with this, that um, would be really surprised to hear that Boston has a functioning negotiation-based review <laughs> system. So, so this- It's all relative. Right, it is all relative. But, <laughs> um, but historically speaking, the public uh, rarely had a clear idea of how projects were reviewed and approved by the city up until really recently. This, this really changed when Mayor Marty Walsh, um, who took office in 2014, became the mayor and who recently stepped down earlier this year to, to serve as the Secretary of Labor. 
Um, so Mayor Walsh made it priority to make the design review process transparent and accountable. And so, um, so as I was in working uh, with um, the Boston Planning and Development Agency, the, the agency was really trying to reinvent itself um, as an entity that, you know, is mainly based on negotiation-based regime, but trying to make it as transparent and accountable and you know certain at, to the extent that it can be made. So this mm-hmm. experience from Boston, I think, suggests that you can certainly have a negotiation-based regime that is highly secretive, you know, backroom wheeling and de- dealing, or you can also have a pretty well-functioning and professionally managed system. So it, it really all depends on how the process is designed, managed, and implemented. And, and again, going to the, the going back to the, the point about devil is really in the details with, with these um, you know, development reviews. And Seattle, on the other hand, I mean, I wouldn't call it dysfunctional per se, but it does dispel the myth that you know, schedule-based regime is inherently going to be faster than a negotiation-based mm-hmm. one. So I think it's it sort of you know, shows um, the best and worst worlds of, of you know, both types. Yeah, and I'm not sure that these cities are the best example of of this, but um, you know, I'm thinking about how a lot of the outcomes we see, they're not really a product of specific policies and processes, at least not at at the root. Um, it's really how does the city and its leadership feel about development, and the policies will kind of flow from that. And so, if you have a city that's just not very uh, friendly toward development. Maybe they've got by right approvals, but they're going to find other ways to put up barriers. Um, mm-hmm. And likewise, if you're pretty friendly toward development, you think like we need to, to build more housing or office space or whatever, and you have a negotiated exaction process, you can still find ways to make that work if that's in your interest to do so. Right. And I'm I, I'm not saying anything new. This is something that Mike. I don't know if this is actually your work or if if it's Pavo and and Mike Lenz or if it's all of you guys. But this is something you guys have talked about quite a bit. Yes, we have. I, I don't know which one of us came up with it, but we all say it. We, we've, we've merged into a single piece. Yes. Um, the, uh, I mean, I would just say uh, along this, because it was one of the more striking things about the paper to me as well was the extent to which Boston had really uh, kind of professionalized this negotiation. And I, I hope you can't hear it, but my dog is chiming in as well. I think she, she was also a fan. Um, but I, I think it, it really reinforces a point that is is lost too often in in planning discussions especially when oh gosh i'll feed you later um (laughs) especially when we talk about uh things like development negotiations which is just this simple point which is just you know good government is kind of expensive you know if you you can argue about whether you want to have a discretionary regime or not but if you do you know you should invest the money the taxpayers should be willing to invest some money to to make sure it's really good that you yeah. have professionals and so forth. And so the, the contrast that struck me when I read that part of the paper was uh, with Los Angeles, where discretion is really seen as a way to push the costs of a lot of public services onto developers and where it's, you know, it, relative to Boston, very understaffed, mm-hmm. you know, it, and it is just kind of like it, city council members kind of deciding what they want. And I think, you know, there's, you could have, you know, again, reasonable people can disagree about how much discretion we want to have in the development approval process, but whatever that amount is, just this thing that we've lost in this era of austerity is this idea that, well, you know, you, you should pay people to be good professional civil servants who 
do a really good job mm -hmm. at it and you'll get better outcomes. And I think there's a political atmosphere in too many of our cities that we want to do it on the cheap. Uh, and then, you know, still we're disappointed when it's, it doesn't come out the way we want. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I, I agree with you. And and it sounds to me like um, L.A. seems a lot similar to how Chicago uh, functions in practice as well. That's like Chicago's mm -hmm. um, alderman ultimately has the, the, you know, almost exclusive control over what gets built right. within their jurisdiction. And that city staff are like rarely involved um, in the, the negotiation process, that it all gets baked mm -hmm. before it even gets to the city. And um, I do have a different paper that talks about the different styles of entitlement processes, um, including Chicago, New York. Um, I didn't look into LA, which is why I don't really know much about um, LA, but it does go... Um, it's part of it can be explained by the, the history of the city's development uh, regime mm. and also how um, the zoning has evolved over time in each city. So I think it's a it's it's historical, um, you know, there, there's an historical component to that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think ma many processes in our cities uh, would not look the way they do if someone designed them all mm -hmm. at once. Right. They just they kind of emerge and we work with uh, we work with them as they emerge. Yeah, this is an aside, but I've been following here in Los Angeles this proposal to expand something called Fire District One, which prohibits certain types of construction in mainly in downtown L.A., uh, basically certain types of wood construction that are feared to you know be more likely to burn down. And the city just created a report uh, in response to a council member's motion to evaluate expanding this program. And it was really interesting, like at the beginning of the report, how they just said, we don't actually know where this came from. And, and so for that reason, like we're talking about expanding this program that we don't really know why it exists in the first place or what motivated its creation. I feel like that kind of status quo, it was a really good example of, of that inertia to me. Mm -hmm. So before we close out, I do want to get into the more philosophical conversation about value capture a little bit here. And Mike published a really great paper just a, a week or two ago called Value Capture Reconsidered, which we'll include in the show notes um, and is on the Lewis Center website. But him and I even disagree on some of this just at a, at a philosophical level. And so I want to kind of get both of your, your views on this. But the way I've been thinking about this concept of value capture is... If you took a city the size of LA, where most properties are zoned for only one home, and all at once you just change the zoning so that you could now build 10 units on every single parcel, that would be a massive increase in the total capacity uh, of the city. And because you've zoned, rezoned everything, the price of land might not actually go up because there were just so many potential sites for developers that you know they would be maybe willing to pay more but because the property owners wouldn't have the market power to demand more, they could build these 10-unit buildings um, with much lower land costs per unit because the land cost hadn't gone up to acquire it. And you know, because of that, we'd get a lot more homes built, and those homes would be more affordable because there would, you know, the, the land would make up a smaller share of the total cost. In that case, because developers had the market power, it's the buyers and renters of this new housing who would benefit from lower prices. If you instituted some form of value capture in that situation, you'd really be 
you know, you might have one or two units out of the 10 unit building that has to go to a, a low income household, but you'd, the other eight or nine units would have to be a little more expensive in order to cover that cost. And so you'd get a little less housing overall, maybe a lot less housing overall, just because there's only so many people who can afford that higher cost housing and more people can afford it at the lower price. So what I'm getting at here is if we could do that massive upzoning where you didn't have land prices go up, you could build a lot of housing, not have value capture, and it would be consumers, buyers, renters of housing who would mostly benefit from that. Profits wouldn't really go up for developers as far as I can tell. But the thing is, that's not almost ever how upzoning actually works. So what usually happens is you upzone just one neighborhood or just one part of a neighborhood or just one parcel even um, for an individual project. And in that case, the number of viable development sites just remains very limited. And so it's the property owners who have the market power. And so the developer, their residual land value, as we talked about, that goes up and they're, they're just going to pay more for the land. And so the property owner is capturing the value if you don't have any kind of value capture um, program in place. Whereas if you say, we're going to, you know, again, require 10 or 20% of the units be affordable, what happens there is the amount that the developer is willing to offer for the land falls back down a bit. And so instead of the property owners getting this windfall, the ones who are selling to the developers, we instead get a few affordable units out of every project. And in that context, that actually sounds better to me. You know, I would rather get a few affordable units than have a bunch of property owners get really rich from selling their properties and not having, you know, because of this, this windfall. So I realize that's a very long and kind of hard to follow <laughs> uh, explanation, but I'm curious of both of your thoughts on, on just that general concept and like, what do we do with that? Well, I'm thinking of, well, I guess for the, the listeners who might not be aware of the concept of value capture, right? Um, it's essentially this idea that um, certain governmental actions, such as upzoning, increases the, mm -hmm. the value, property value of future development. And so some of that increment should be recaptured for the public benefit. So that's the, the core you know, idea of um, the public benefit, uh, value capture concept. And I, I really do love to tell the story about South Boston Waterfront, um, once known as the Innovation District. Um, now it's it's the Seaport Square um, to illustrate this case in point. So. In, um, in in 1970, South Boston Waterfront was, you know, um, it was filthy, like the water was filthy, there was no transportation or transit access. So um, the valuable waterfront land that was sitting um, there was sold for $3.4 million, $5 million in, in 1970s. But then a series of public investments took place, the, the Big Dig mm -hmm. or other uh, the Central Artery tunnel, tunnel Project, which was a $14 billion public investment, which put um, the interstate interstate right through South Boston waterfront and then connected and con connecting it to downtown Boston and then Logan Airport. The, um, the harbor was cleaned up, which is another, um, you know, several billion dollars of public investment. And then the silver line was put in place. So, so because of these series of public investment, 
the South Boston waterfront land that was sold for $3.5 million in 1970s sold for, and by the same property owner, was um, sold for $200 million in 20, 2006. So even mm-hmm. accounting for inflation, that's a huge increase in that value uplift. And so basically yeah. the idea is to capture that value that's um, supposedly going to the landowners um, that were you know, sitting on parking lot for decades to, to be able to use it for, for the public benefit. I guess I bring up this um, example because I think value capture um, is oftentimes more than just upzoning. Um, so amenity-rich cities like Boston and Seattle, as we know, have been growing rapidly the past decade, if not longer, right? And because cities are becoming more desirable, that people who are willing to pay higher rents are moving in, and that's what de- makes the, the developers pay more for, for a given piece of property, right? Developable site, which again goes back to the residual land value concept um, that we discussed. So so if we imagine a scenario without a value capture mechanism, developers will simply um, theoretically bid up the the land purchase price up to the point where the uh, up to the point until the project is deemed um, feasible or infeasible. And then I think this, this dynamic just simply gets amplified when we're talking about upzoning, but the 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 value capture overall is much broader than than upzoning. It's about cities becoming or certain places becoming more desirable, regardless of the the upzoning um, taking place. So Mm-hmm. So in in those instances, again, uh, without a value capture mechanism, the the you know up, uplift will go to the landowners, and and some of the existing um, you know inclusionary housing ordinances sort of you know if they're functioning efficiently, in my opinion, the burden falls on the landowners that it's supposed to capture that value uplift that's going to the landowners because again, right. developers will bid for less because they can anticipate the cost of providing that you know whatever public amenities that they're they're asked to provide. But I think there's a difference between what, you know, how it's supposed to function theoretically or on paper versus how the real world functions. Um, inclusionary housing ordinances or other value capture mechanisms do add a layer of burden to housing developers, right? So that that added logistical and administrative burden for the housing developers do, you know, have an impact on housing production production and who who can, you know, get through get the projects, you know, through the finish line. And then also, as we well know, land markets are not perfect, right? It's it's one of the most mm. imperfect imperfect markets out there. So because developers are not do not have all the information, because the landowners do not have all the information, the the idea that the the, the majority of the burden will fall on the landowner is unclear, right? And that's where we where we get into whether imposing additional burden, you know makes uh, market rate housing more more expensive uh, because developers are trying to cr- cross subsidize and it's, this is I, I mean this is definitely essentially true when uh, when the land has already been paid for so so in my view I think um, value capture in theory and and the, the value capture tools that we as we know uh, in theory adheres to the original idea of value capture being that in the, it's it's the landowners that should not profit from from the their um, you know by sitting on on it without any con- making mm-hmm. any c- contribution but the implementation of that value capture tool and the the imperfect market conditions uh, likely is 
is doing you know some harm to to that logic and you know whether or not the benefits of value capture tools outweigh the harm or vice versa is a question you know that is yet to be answered and and i guess to your point about you know why don't we upzone everything so that you know there we can accommodate as much housing as possible as long as there's demand for it right i think that kind of goes back to perhaps the average cost problem, right? That you can't anticipate how much growth will happen in the future. So you zone, you create um, zoning regulations. And then, for example, cities like Seattle and Boston, you know, becomes highly desirable. Then you, so you're you suddenly in the position to, you know, maybe completely upzone. But then um, we all know that the the feasibility, right? Political feasibility of doing that in practice right, right. Is, is almost impossible, right? Um, you can... So I, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And and uh, perhaps, Mike, um, you can um, chime in. Yeah, as well. Mike, Mike, what do you what do you got for us? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what, what Minji said is, is is correct. I guess the, the issues I have with the way we do value capture are largely with what the trigger is. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that part of the problem she identified, which is um, this issue of, well, the goal is to make sure landowners don't get a windfall. Uh, and, and we're not sure how often that happens in practice, and it becomes, in real life, a very difficult policy problem. A lot of that stems from the fact that we want to capture the value from the landowner, mm -hmm. but we use the trigger for the policy to be development, right? And so whenever you do that, there's going to be some risk, and, and you can try and adjust it with different policy instruments, but there's going to be some risk that, that the burden falls on the developer. And there's going to be some risk, I think, and this is what I think often gets overlooked, that some development simply won't happen, not because it's infeasible totally, right? But just because I think the typical landowner is, is a satisficer, right? They're not someone who needs to make the absolute most money possible out of their property. Uh, they're someone who is fine making a, a comfortable amount of money at minimal effort. Mm -hmm. Right. And in and in property markets and land markets like Los Angeles, Seattle, Boston and so forth, owning land is, is just a pretty good gig. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> and you can you can be doing almost nothing and making quite a bit of money. And so to have someone come to you with the prospect of making more money if you go through all the hoops that are involved in property development, you know, that end result of more money has to be really big uh, to sort of to, to, to change that inertia. And so that's, you know, as, as Shane knows very well, I'm, I'm very attached to the probably politically very difficult, if not impossible, original version of value <laughs> capture, which is just, we tax the land value and let the chips fall where they may. And, and, and I think in addition to the reason I just stated for that, uh, the other reason, or one of the other reasons I really favor that is because it's, there's, there is value that comes with upzoning. You know, and and we we're it's it's appropriate as policymakers and planners for us to be aware with that. But there's also just a lot of value that comes from not upzoning, right? And and in in that in most of our big expensive cities is the much more common situation, right? And so like the the South Boston waterfront, you know, grew tremendously in value as a result of public investment and so forth, and the economy growing. Um, you know, my parents' house <laughs> like quintupled in value. <laughs> And, and they did sort of fix up the interior. They did a good job, but that's not why that happened. And it, it's because their suburban town really didn't build much housing for like 40 years. And so my, my, 
I think my fundamental hesitation with the way we approach value capture is that the, the not upzoning and the not building is probably in the aggregate responsible for a lot more value uplift in a supply constrained city mm-hmm. and is also more socially harmful. And so it's, I, there's a certain narrative about development that arises when we make a point of trying to capture value from people who are building housing and not from people who aren't, which reinforces what I think to go all the way back to uh, what, what Minji said or, or what Shane quoted Minji saying in, in her bio, which is this, this sort of view of development that planners have that sort of colors it with suspicion even though in, in many of the, our cities, we, whether you like developers or not, uh, we do need what they produce, which is housing. And so one of my concerns is just that it, it reinforces this idea that, that housing and more housing is a, is a source of our problems. Uh, and, and that for that reason, the people who produce it owe us something. Um, and, and it's fine to say that as long as we also recognize that the people who own land and don't build housing should owe us something as well. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, it's, um, I've read your, your um, policy brief before joining this podcast. Um, and I think it's a, a very uh, valid sort of critique and, you know, challenge to conventional, you know, ways of thinking value capture. And I completely agree with your sort of um, point that it's, it's problematic to, you know, attach value capture tools and the trigger trigger is that development component that you're essentially, right. you know, because again, the market is not um, not perfect, and um, and that landowners are not, you know, they operate the way that they do. That uh, value capture oftentimes puts burden on the developers or the final final end users um, because it's triggered when developments do happen. So we're essentially, you know, penalizing development to happen to some extent, although that might not be the original intent. So I think um, it's absolutely um, a valid and correct critique of existing value capture practice. And I also think that, you know, um, you've said how um, value of upzoning, there's tremendous value, but there's, you know, tremendous value of not upzoning. And yes, I think that goes back to Shane's point about, you know, if we can just upzone everything, there's not going to be value attached to upzoning, right? There's not, yeah, right. So, so there's not, not more, um, you know, there's no more value uplift that will go to the landowners if, you know, everywhere else is, is developable. It's because certain parts of the city, certain, you know, parcels, can be upzoned and can be developed is contributing to the, to the outcome that value is being created by the upzoning. So in an ideal world, right, if we can have a, um, a zoning sort of regime that fluctuates and, and sort of uh, responds flexibly to the changing market conditions and demand, um, we wouldn't necessarily have, you know, project by project, um, you know, value capture, you know, rationale even, right? There's no it can't be done, right? But because we have a um, you know restricted and regulated land market and development sort of regime that uh, and that this zoning cannot change and correspond to the changing market conditions, the volatility um, aspect that that we are essentially you know um, creating this value capture tool. Yeah, I think it's. I mean that that's. I think a one way to think about it is that in the Boston area, in the Los Angeles area, in the New York area, we, we've, again, not by design, uh, by political influence and, and happenstance and so forth, there's a very small share of land that 
we sort of implicitly expect to do a tremendous amount of work, right? It's going to supply new housing. It's going to supply collective benefits. Um, it's going to sort of by a, by a function of that allow a, a large other portion of land to just sort of remain the way it is. And it's just too much pressure on that mm -hmm. land, right? That that it's that the planning system in order to get all those outcomes, some of which are contradictory out of this tiny share of our land, um, ties itself in knots and, and leaves. And it's a process that I think understandably many people then find disappointing and disillusioning and maybe corrupt depending on how they look at it. <laughs> and a lot of it is a product of just us, again, not necessarily in a single decision, looking at the vast majority of the land and saying something along the lines of like, well, that can stay the way mm -hmm. it is. Right. And that's just not tenable uh, in a place where the economy has grown so much, you know, and where so many people want to live. Uh, so many people want to have jobs. So, yeah, I think I think we're on the same page with that. <laughs> I, I want to get to our last question. I know we've already taken so much of your time, Inji. Since I've put forward a totally infeasible, just upzone everything idea, uh, Mike put forward a slightly less, but mostly still infeasible land value tax oh, yeah. proposal. For you, what would a ideal value capture program look like? Putting aside political economy, what could actually happen just if we're trying to build the best society we can, right. what would that look like? Or would we even have value capture? Would right. it be something right. different? Yeah, no, mine's not going to be politically feasible in any sense <laughs> <laughs> either. But I do, you know, agree with the, the you know, general core idea that it, it should be the land that should be taxed and that not the developments on it. Um, all but because of the the, um, the difficulty in estimating the land value and et cetera, um, I think the the most you know simple way to capture that value uplift is to tax on capital gains on land, which of course is. Um, politically almost because real estate is seen as an investment, right? So when I talk about value capture right. and, and an investment for, for regular people, right, and therefore it should right. be protected from the kinds of taxes that we apply. Exactly. To exactly. And and so forth. When I talk about value capture at conferences or, you know, workshops, I definitely get questions. Oh, so I have a, you know, a property that I bought for my retirement, you know, investment. And you're saying that I can't benefit from my investment. Like I, I, I mm -hmm. can't have that. And that's a valid critique when you're talking thinking about it at the individual level, but at a societal level, I think the, the most um, simplistic and um, clear way to, to capture the value uplift is whenever, you know, um, to, to basically um, tax um, on the, the capital gains um, when land transactions mm -hmm. happen. Yes, very true. Very which, true. which right now, for a single person, I think you're you have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of profit is exempted from taxes, and if you're a couple, it's five hundred thousand dollars, right? So we're exempting a lot of profit from taxes in our current system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and honestly, in, in many parts of the country, you just exempt all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And amounts. and I think you know the the point about the the person who invested in a property and sees that as their retirement, I think. As you say, it's it's a valid critique individually, and right. you can't fault for someone for taking part in a system that they were encouraged to take part in and has been designed to do exactly what they're doing. But on the other hand, like if you zoom out, it's just not possible for us to keep going down this road where 50 years ago, you know, in, in inflation adjusted terms, a home might have been 50 or $100,000. Yeah. 
And then for the next generation, it's twice that price adjusted for inflation. And then for the generation after that, it's even more expensive. At a certain point, that can't, that has to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the trajectory that we're on. Thank you so much, Minji, for joining us. Mm-hmm. This was like, I think we somehow managed to cover everything we wanted to. I know, <laughs> there was a lot. And yeah, I wish we had more time. And I really, again, want to thank you for, for inviting me, for digging out my work. Um, you know, you write these pieces, hoping that someone would pick up and, you know, would make some sort of <laughs> impact, you know, in terms of real policy making. Um, so I'm, I'm really um, thrilled to have taken part in this um, podcast. Thanks again to Professor Kim for joining us. And thank you to everyone who's listened, subscribed, given a five-star rating, shared the podcast with a friend, or just sent us a kind message. We've really enjoyed working on the show, and it's been wonderful to know that there are people out there who have found it useful or interesting in some way. As always, we have show notes, a summary of the paper, and a transcript of the interview on our website at lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at Michael Manville 6. I think the 6 is supposed to be like an upside down E. See you in a few weeks. Yeah.